being told that I am an alcoholic. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, thank you to, to Ed and the committee for inviting me to uh, West Central Indiana Mini Convention. Um, <clears throat> you have a little, um, you have a couple of contradictions going on I'm trying to figure out. Um, all the little sayings up here have something to do with darkness and the convention's happy, joyous, and free. Um, and we know you don't judge the speakers, but we would like you to fill out the piece of paper on your table to rate them. Um, I like that you're overtly judging. We'll go with that. You can't beat it. Um, and, and I've enjoyed the speakers. Uh, Tina last night and uh, Charles this morning and Pauline was fantastic. And uh, I love Al-Anon. Um, Welcome to the Al-Anons. Uh, my mother is in Al-Anon. I sent my partner by accident to Al-Anon with my behavior apparently sober. Um, and it's funny because I sponsor a load of women and um, often I will have to send a few of them to Al-Anon because you are the experts. And I had one sponsee once say to me, um, how come you don't go to Al-Anon? And I said, well, here's the deal. If you drink... I will be disappointed, but I will sleep well, and I'm not calling your husband and driving around town looking for you. And she said, Hilda, that's a terrible thing to say. I said, and that's why you're going. <laughs> it's that simple. Um, so so I've, had, um, I've had this thing, <laughs> I wasn't going to share it today, but, but it's still in my head. I'm stuck on Winnie the Pooh. And um, i tell you what happened. I was in a women's meeting, and one of my sobriety sisters was sharing. And she was talking about when she drank, she was like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Everything was terrible. Tomorrow was going to be worse. And all these women shared back that they identified that they too were Eeyore. And I was really confused, because I'm sitting in the meeting thinking, I was never Eeyore. I am Winnie the Pooh. Because to me, when I'm drinking, tomorrow is always going to be better. Somewhere else is always going to be better. I'm not changing anything, but it will be better. And then I started thinking about AA and Winnie the Pooh. And I realized that if Eeyore are our depressive drunks and Winnie the Pooh are drunks like me, then that makes Tigger our drunks that did things that made them go very fast. Right? And Piglet must be our untreated Al-Anon. And, and that makes Christopher Robin our black belt Al-Anon, right? And, uh, and I saw this Winnie the Pooh story recently where um, it was Eeyore's birthday. And Winnie the Pooh was taking a pot of honey over to Eeyore for his birthday. And of course, as he's heading over to Eeyore's, he starts to eat the honey, Right? So by the time he gets to Eeyore's, the pot is licked clean. And he says to Eeyore, I brought you a pot to, to store things in. <laughs> that is exactly the kind of drunk I am. I have the best intentions in the world, but I can't follow through on them to save my life. You know, and like Winnie the Pooh, it's always about the honey. It's about getting the honey, it's about eating the honey, and it's about getting over the honey. So I totally identify with Whitney the Pooh, and uh, I, um, 
let's see. <clears throat> I, uh, I'm born in London, save you wondering. Um, my family is Irish. Uh, they like to introduce me as the only limey little bastard born in England. <laughs> Lovingly, of course. Um, but I grew up in a pub. My, uh, my grandparents brought me up. They own the pub. I'm an only child and an only grandchild. And I had a thing about alcohol long before I ever drank it. I like the shapes of the bottles and the colors and the fancy labels. And uh, as an only child, I entertained myself well. Uh, so for me, my playground was the cellar. And I loved it. And the bottles were my playthings. You know, I'd line whiskey bottles up on one side and vodka bottles on the other, and I'd have the whiskey bottles chatting to the vodka bottles, and they'd be chatting to me, and I'd be chatting to them. And, you know, vodka was the good guys, and whiskey was the bad guys. And um, the only sad part about that is it was still happening in my 20s. But I, I had a thing about it before I ever drank it. And, uh, you know, I didn't know how old I was when I had my first drink, but I know my pajamas still had feet in them. You know, and, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. And uh, I was, um, my granddad's, my granddad, uh, well, my uncle, who's also in the fellowship, will say that he was not an alcoholic. Um, I don't know if he was or if he wasn't, but uh, I learned a lot from my granddad, including how to play pool, shoot darts, and uh, things that young women will need later in life. And... <clears throat> The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about me around page 33, and I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says it doesn't matter how much you drink or how often you drink, it's what happens when you drink. And that many who are merely potential alcoholics often become the real thing in a relatively short amount of time, particularly true of women. And I'm one of those women. You know, at 16 I had an ulcer, at 17 I got done for dri driving, at 18 I had a heart attack, and six months later I was in my first mental hospital. And that's when drink was working. It, um, it all went downhill after that. <laughs> Over the next three years, I was in and out of five mental hospitals, and the longest I was ever out of a mental hospital was two weeks. And uh, in those two weeks, I had my own flat. I had the curtains drawn and the answering machine on and a fridge full of um, Osti Spumanti vodka and Michelob Light because I'm a calorie counter, too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, for two weeks, I did not see or speak to another human being, and I was happy. I mean, I have a clear memory of standing in the shower, drinking a cold Nick Light, not knowing if it was day or night, not caring, thinking it just doesn't get any better than this. But what happened was I got a knock on the door one day, and it was my mom, my shrink, two policemen, and two nurses. And they shot me in the arse with something and put me in a jacket with really long arms. And uh, I came to at the Institute for the Living in Hartford, Connecticut. And I thought I was on candid camera or I'd been punked or something. You know, it seemed surreal to me because I found out that I had been committed for a minimum of a year for being a danger to myself and others. Now, I hadn't seen anybody for two weeks. I couldn't figure out who the others were. It really bothered me. <laughs> and anybody who's been in a place like that knows the people in those places are crazy. Right? Now, I knew there was something wrong with me. I've always known there was something a little off. 
You know, I don't think I've ever been a full ticket. I don't think I'm ever going to be a full ticket. And quite honestly, I do not believe there is a program in the world that will make me a full ticket. What I do know is that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the tools that allow me to act as if I'm a full ticket. And I'm running with that today. But at the time, I knew there was something wrong, and I knew they didn't know what it was. But I had this roommate, and it was really obvious what was wrong with her, right? I mean, she had rage attacks. One minute she'd be fine, and then she'd snap. She'd start going for nurses and punching out windows. It'd be chaos. And I'd be sitting on the bed reading, nothing going on here. Mm-mm, I am good. <laughs> and they did this thing called wet packing. And all these nurses would come in. They would tackle her to the floor, wrap her in cold, wet sheets, and total her away. Now, she had something I didn't have, and that was friends locally. And her friends used to smuggle money in all the time, so our room always had money hidden in it. So when she'd get toggled away, I'd start thinking, because I'm a thinker. I'd start thinking, what a waste it is to leave all that money sitting around. Right? Somebody should do something with it. So I went AWOL on her dime, and... Uh, the first time I went AWOL, I had $50 on me. I'm in downtown Hartford. I have no clue what I'm going to do. And this little fellow wandered up to me, and he said, do you want to buy a ticket to Prince? Now, I didn't know who Prince was. I am truly an ACDC Black Sabbath kind of girl. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking a dark auditorium, this may work. Right? So I get these tickets, I smuggle two bottles of vodka in, I'm sitting in the nosebleed seats, and while he did his little raspberry beret thing, I got absolutely legless. And uh, after the concert, I'm wandering around Hartford, and I end up in the park, and there's these fellas sitting in a circle passing a bottle. Winos, really. But I sat down with them, and they kept looking at me like stupid and crazy. But they let me drink with them all night, and they never said a word. <laughs> and as dawn came, the white band with the blue letters pulled up, Institute for the Living. And I stood up and said, my ride's here, i got to go. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and they looked at each other like, yep, crazy. So I get back, and I'd have to build up my little trust points, and anybody who's been institutionalized knows about that. And, uh, you know, as time was going on, I wasn't going as far. And uh, one of the last times I went AWOL, I ended up in this pizza joint around the corner from the hospital. And as I went in, I said to myself, okay, Helga, this time we are going to do this properly. We are going to do this like a lady. So I go in, I order a slice of pizza and two pitchers of beer, I sit down in the booth, and I start pouring it in the glass, because we're going to do this like a lady. But as I get started, some of the nurses from my unit came in on their break. So now, I'm down in the booth with the pitcher up to my mouth, trying to get as much down me before they see me. You know, just madness, really. As my year was coming up, I had to go before a board of psychiatrists. And my psychiatrist stood up and said, Hilda will never live in normal society. She is completely incapable. And his recommendation was that I did a minimum of another year. 
it took me two and a half months to convince the board to let me out. So I did 14 and a half months. In hindsight, I think he may have had a point. <laughs> As I got out, I moved from Hartford to Hamden, which was just down the road. I got a little job, and I met a fella. And this fella turned out to be a coke dealer. Now, I had never done coke before. I didn't know it would let you drink longer. Those of you nodding already did. I did not. But I'll tell you what happened. In a relatively short amount of time, I've got a little job at $700 a week. I have a coke habit at $1,500 a week. And when you do the math, it wasn't coming out terribly well. And I was sitting on the counter in my kitchen one day. I was drinking a case of Michelite at the time. And I looked out at my flat and realized I had sold everything, including my curtains, for coke. And I thought, Hilda, if you are hanging out with people who will buy your curtains, we have a problem here. <laughs> you know, I never did coke again. In fact, I'd be in parties and people around me would be doing coke and my head would go, mm -mm -mm, remember the curtains. <laughs> now, I think that's what makes me a real alcoholic because far worse things happen to me drinking than ever happened to me with coke. And never once did my head ever say, don't drink. What it might say is, don't drink whiskey because it makes you mean. Stay away from the red wine because it makes you cry. And my version of chapter three is switching from scotch to brandy or scotch to brandy. But it never actually said, don't drink, right? So I'm in Hamden, I get done for drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, indecent exposure, and I think, I never should have left England. It was so much better there. So I moved to England, and uh, I'm not in England very long, I get done for drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, indecent exposure, and I think, you know, America was so much better. <laughs> so I move again, and I have a friend who describes that as changing cabins on the Titanic. <laughs> The view changes, but the destination is the same. And I have a long list of arrests for um, indecent exposure. And I know I don't look the type today. Maybe a little. <laughs> but something happens when you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic. And I know I'm not alone in Alcoholics Anonymous because I've heard plenty of, plenty of women share. But as soon as you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic, for whatever reason, I just know that you have to see my tits. <laughs> now, now, I tried everything for that not to be true. And I know that it's part of my alcoholism because I don't feel the, ne the need to show them to you now, right? Um, <laughs> So I'm back and forth and back and forth, and I'm back in England this time, and uh, Andy, my mate Andy, him and I have been friends for a really long time. We're tending bar together, and uh, Andy's birthday was on New Year's Eve, so we started drinking on Christmas Eve, as you do. And uh, now I've always been a blackout drinker. I used to call it losing time. I was always losing time. I might lose a couple of days, I might lose a few hours, but I was always losing time. Now, I had assumed that when I had lost time, I had passed out quietly somewhere. I found out on the 3rd of January, that is not true. <laughs> the phone rang, and when I answered it, it was Andy, and he asked me if I was ready to pick out rings. And I had no clue what he was talking about. 
And he said, no, no, Hilda, not this time. Now, he brought over a video, and I look great on this video. I am not slurring my words. I am not walking funny and drinking hand the whole time. It was all the different pubs we were in. My father was there. I'm watching the video, and Andy went down on one knee, and I thought, dear God, say no. Because I wasn't there. I had no memory of it whatsoever. And it was the first time I realized that you didn't know that I didn't know that I wasn't there. So I did what I did best, really. I went to the pub. And I found the guy in the pub that knows everything about everything. This guy is in every bar all over the world, right? There's a few of you here tonight, I know. But this is the guy that you lost the time and he tells you exactly how the pendulum clock works. I mean, he truly is the most interesting man in the world, right? So I'm telling him what's happened and poor old me and I'm engaged and I don't know what to do. And he said, did you know if you volunteer on a kibbutz in Israel, you get three meals a day, they do your laundry and you get 50 quid a month. <laughs> I thought, result? Three days later, I'm in Golders Green. I've got a visa. I'm going to Israel. Now, I'm a good Irish Catholic girl. <laughs> this all made sense to me. <laughs> so I went to Israel. I went for three months. I stayed nine. And I came out of a blackout in a Tel Aviv jail charge of drunk driving. And I can tell you that really horrible things happen to young vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. And I got out on bail, and I jumped bail, and I went to Egypt, and I ended up with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. And really horrible things happened to vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. And I ended up getting dumped in Cairo just near the American embassy. I had a tattered t-shirt on, a beat-up pair of shorts, and not another thing to my name. And a big American Marine took pity on me, and he looked after me. It was Ramadan, and everything was shut, including the American embassy. And him and his mates looked after me until the embassy opened. And I can tell you that I truly believe a non-alcoholic woman who had been through what I had been through would probably never drink again. But I'm a goalpost drinker. I'm one of those drinkers that says, if it gets bad, I move the goalpost back just a little bit. Think if it gets worse, I move the goalpost back just a little bit more. You know, I got an emergency passport. I wasn't 20 minutes in the air on my way home, and I thought, hell, they could have killed me. I was drunk when I landed. I did not know that it was alcoholism. Had no clue. And in fact, the whole 80s for me are a bit like the talking head song, Once in a Lifetime, where he goes, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? It's like, only the long blackout with little bits of reality tossed in. Coming to the end of the 80s, I found out I was in a relationship that apparently I had been in for quite a while. And uh, my partner was commenting on my drinking, which I just thought was rude. <laughs> so I moved <laughs> to Nebraska. <laughs> I moved in with me mom, and uh, I wasn't with me mom very long, and she started commenting on my drinking. And I really didn't know what to do, and I thought about my uncle. Now, my uncle had tried to 12-step me in a pub in St. Albans when I was 18. He was nine months in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was on fire. And uh, he was buying the beer, so I let him talk, as you do. And I remember him saying, you know, Hilda, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you need never drink again. I was 18. I thought, why wouldn't I want to drink? 
But he could see exactly where I was going. And of course, fast forward, it's all gone horribly wrong. And I thought about him because he was still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my uncle was what I thought a real alcoholic was, right? My uncle went to prison. I only ever went to jail. My uncle went to detox centers. I only ever went to mental hospitals. So in my mind, he was what a real alcoholic was. But here he was, still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I thought I'd give it a go. So I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on New Year's Eve, 1989. I picked New Year's Eve because I truly believe that no real alcoholic would quit drinking on New Year's Eve. I know today only alcoholics mark the calendar. Non-alcoholics never think about their drinking. They don't mark little X's on calendars. It's like virgins don't go for pregnancy tests. Doesn't happen. Did not know that. <laughs> so I, I went along to this meeting in Papillion, Nebraska, and it was a little meeting, and uh, they were talking about Ace of Father, we're the children, and I thought I was screwed. Because I know that's not the answer, right? I've always been a seeker. I mean, Israel, please, right? So I can't hear anything they're saying. So I start taking everybody's inventory by their shoes, because I can't look at you either. And the guy next to me had on the biggest pair of cowboy boots I'd ever seen. And I remember thinking, I wonder if his IQ is any bigger than his boot size. I mean, tearing these people to shreds. And after the meeting, I made a beeline for my car, and this big, dumb cowboy followed me out. <laughs> and he says to me, have you got a big book? <laughs> I said, of course I have a big book. Doesn't everybody have a big book? Now, I wouldn't have known a big book if you had beat me with it. But I couldn't tell him that. Without missing a beat, he went to his truck, and he gave me his big book. And I was speechless, because nobody had ever seen me like that. And I went to get in my car, and this little old woman ran up to me and said, Did you know if you go to a lot of meetings and you don't drink in between, you can't get drunk? Thank you. I got in my car, I thought, these people are freaks. There's something going on here. But I tell you, what happened was, as I drove out of the parking lot, that little woman's voice resonated in my head, and I thought, hang on a minute, she may have a point here. If I went to a lot of these meetings and I didn't drink in between, I might stay out of trouble. That's what was attractive to me. And that's exactly what I did. I went to a lot of meetings, I didn't drink in between. I, um, <laughs> I went to big meetings, um, and I got a sponsor because people would give me a hard time about not having one, right? You know what they're like. So I found the oldest, frailest woman I could find. So I thought she wouldn't give me a hard time. <laughs> so for three years, I'm suiting up and showing up, and I'm going to A, and I'm doing whatever you ask me to do, and uh, she... She got really ill when I was about three years sober. And uh, I went to see her in hospital, and she was dying. And she said to me, just remember, Hilda, Alcoholics Anonymous will be here for you when you come back. I hadn't drank yet. I had no clue what she was talking about. But she knew exactly what was going on. And the truth is, I'm coming five minutes late, leaving five minutes early, calling it a home group. Right? 
I'm sitting in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous Diet of Alcoholism because I think the steps are for those of you who are really unwell, and there seem to be a lot of you, right? I'm thinking you should be glad I'm here because you need me. Arrogance and ignorance is what I suffered from, and I had no clue because I was a rocket to stardom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you've been here any amount of time, you know who I'm talking about. I look good. I sound good. The jobs are getting better. I'm wearing dry clean only clothes. I don't really need what you guys need, you know. So I'm three years sober. She passes away, and I pulled away. I went from seven meetings a week to five to four, three a week, two a week, two a month, because now I'm very busy. And I'm not going to Wednesday night because I can't stand the secretary. And I'm not going to Friday night because the same guy stares the same shite every week, and I just can't listen to him anymore. And now I'm taking AA's inventory. So I'm three and a half years sober. I'm in Florida on my way to my dream job. I got this fantastic job I worked really hard for. My partner has come back <clears throat> because I haven't been drinking. We're walking on the beach in Florida, and my partner turned to me and said, You know what, Hilda, not only do I not like you, I don't love you drunk or sober. And I thought, Are you kidding? Three and a half years I haven't had a drink for you, which was my other problem. So I took my now ex to the airport, and uh, as the plane took off, I walked in the bar. I started with double jack, because that's how I drink. Started drinking on the Thursday, arrived in Germany on the Sunday, started my new job on the Monday, got done for drunk driving on the Friday, and woke up in a wet bed next to my new boss on Saturday morning. That's my drinking. Glamour drinking. <laughs> I drank like that for nine months. And I've heard people stand at podiums and say, if you want to pick up where you left off, pick up a drink tomorrow. Absolutely not my experience. When I started drinking after not drinking, my drinking was ten times worse and more. My blackouts were longer. The people I woke up next to were uglier. The beds were wetter. It was not pretty. And on the morning after what I hope is my last night before, I woke up in my own bed. It was the 20th of July, 1993. It is my sobriety day. Woke up in my own bed. It was wet, and I'm still dressed from work. And all of this is very normal for me now. But when I went into the bathroom, I found my hose were all ripped. I had a great gash down my face. There was blood everywhere, and I had no clue what had happened the night before. And I had that moment. You know, I heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous share about the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I think, God, you're so dramatic. That morning, I knew who they were, and my heart broke. Not because I can't drink. I could drink with the best of them. But I realized that morning that I had become unpredictable to me. I did not care when I was unpredictable to you. But that morning, I realized I had become unpredictable to me. You know, I did the only thing I knew what to do. I phoned English-speaking AA. And this guy, Steve Baker, answered the phone. And I told him my sad old story. Poor old me, been to AA, screwed it up. Wine, wine, wine. And he said something to me I truly believe saved my life. He said, you know, Hilda, the most natural thing in Alcoholics Anonymous for an alcoholic to do is drink. And all what drunks do, we drink. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't shoot our wounded. And I believed him. 
It's the only reason I went to a meeting that night was because I thought he understood. So I'm driving over to this meeting in Holmesbrook, Holland, <laughs> and my head kicks in, and my head goes, hang on, Holden. We don't want anybody to think we're new, right? I don't want anybody to think I don't know what's going on in here. So now I have a plan. I'm thinking about the meetings in Florida and California, huge meetings where, um, you know, you could kind of hide out. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll get a few months of sobriety and then tell you what happened. So I walk into this room in Holmes Hall of Colin, there are seven people in the room for an hour and a half. And nobody was letting me pass, right? So I told all them I said old story. So they're all shiny and new. I'm bloated, sweaty, a vision for you. And uh, it's not hard to see who the newcomer is anyway, right? Uh, so I, <laughs> after the meeting, they were looking for somebody to make the tea and coffee. And I was thinking, wow, I hope they find somebody. <laughs> it's an important commitment. <laughs> and this voice from across the room went, Hilda will do it. And I thought, Hilda who? <laughs> this meeting was Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. This was Tuesday night. I said, hang on a minute. I didn't know if I'm going to be sober on Thursday. That seemed like a long time to me. And this woman goes, if you want to stay sober, you'll make the tea and coffee. And I thought, who is this psycho bitch? And why is she tormenting me? But my mouth went, oh, okay. Because I have no fight left. If you are new here tonight, I hope you're tired. I was tired. I would have done anything that woman suggested, and I tried, because I just didn't know what else to do, you know. So I didn't know if it was the Thursday or the Saturday, but the same woman cornered me, and she said, you know, you really should try and do 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, do you see where we are? Honsbrook, Holland. It is nowhere. Hang on left. She goes, oh, I know where we are. But they had a meeting in Dusseldorf on Friday night, and Kaiserslautern on Wednesday, and Dahan on Monday. I was like, Arr. I said, I'm not driving all over God's acre for a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not happening. She goes, huh, how far did you drive for a drink? Which is so unfair. Because <laughs> I am that drunk at 2 in the morning driving around for anything open. So I started tormenting my home group. Because I had this thing about getting lost. Anytime I got lost, I would get a couple of bottles, find a and b and call it a day. I did it on the way to job interviews, weddings, my wedding once. I just, I, I couldn't do it. If I got lost, that, that was it. So on Thursday, I'd say, okay, I'm driving to Dusseldorf tomorrow night. Does anybody want to go? The guy I hated the most. Hated. Always said, I'll go with you, Hilda like anybody but you. But Mike would show up every month, every Friday. We would drive an hour and a half to Dusseldorf for an hour and a half's meeting, for an hour's coffee afterwards, and an hour and a half's drive home. And I wanted to kill him the entire time. I had left skid marks on the autobahn where I pulled over to tell him to get out. And he was about eight years sober, and he'd go, <laughs> we're going to be late if you don't get going.
Today, I'm grateful for where I got sober because I learned principles before personalities. You have to when you hate your home group, right? <laughs> Learn it real quick. And uh, so I'm reading something in the, in the big book one night. To this day, I can't tell you what it was, but it prompted me to call this psycho woman. And uh, it was like 2 in the morning, and she always answered the phone like she'd been up waiting for me. It was creepy. Um, I think they learned that in sponsor school or something. But um, So I called her up, and I said, Sandy, I'm reading. And uh, <clears throat> so Sandy, Sandy um, dragged me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read every page of the book, word for word, line by line. And uh, it's how I take women through the, step, through, the, through the book today, and I absolutely cannot falter for that foundation. And I'm in her kitchen one day, and we're reading the book, and I said, uh, I know what it says, Sandy. But do you know what it means? And before I could enlighten her, her book came across the kitchen and just missed my head. And I said, Jesus, yes, Sandy, what are you doing? She said, no. When you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you read the black bits. There is nothing in between the lines. What they say is what they mean. And of course, I'm a mumbler. Right? I'm like, I don't know. I think there might be more to it than that. <laughs> I don't know how she didn't kill me. To the patience of a saint. So I'm in her, um, I'm in her house one night. <clears throat> I don't know how long sober I was, but um, I was just about to leave, and I said to Sandy, you know, Sandy, I'm wasting your time and mine because I always drink. I'm a drunk. I think we're just wasting time here. And then he said, you know, Hilda, if you truly take on steps six and seven and put them into practice in your life, you will no longer have the excuse of I've always been and I'm always going to be. She said, six and seven will change that. And she gave me hope that night. I believed her. You know, I was about nine months sober, and uh, my company promoted me. They were sending me to Belgium. Belgium. That was just a place on the news. You know, people really lived there. So I went over to Sandy's. I said, Sandy. They're sending me to Belgium. She said, what's the problem, Hilda? I said, well, I'm only nine months sober. I'm not supposed to have any major changes in the first year. She said, I'm really sorry your company didn't get the memo. <laughs> Pack your bags. So I moved to Belgium, and I was miserable. And uh, I tried duvet therapy. I'm sure nobody in Indiana has ever done this. But it's when you get home from work and you get under the duvet and you get up the next morning and hope it all changes. It didn't work, but I didn't drink. And finally gave in and I called Sandy and I said, look, Sandy, I don't know what to do. And she said, look, I want you to blow the dust off your big book and get your happy little arse 20 minutes up the road to the Brussels meeting. And when you get there, I want you to share honestly. I was like, whatever. So I drive up to Brussels. I get to this meeting, and their coffee was like sludge, and they had almost no literature. So when I shared, I told them so. <laughs> and after the meeting, they took me for coffee, and they gave me the literature commitment. <laughs> you know, they saved my life in Brussels. And uh, I got offered a job in London. I was 14 months sober, and I did it all different. I went over to London every weekend. I had a home group waiting for me when I got there. I had a service commitment waiting for me when I moved. And I didn't have to do duvet therapy. And I had tried something different for a different result. 
I had heard you share that, but I had never actually tried it. And um, so I'm in London, and I went to um, this convention in Ireland. And uh, actually, your anonymity comment reminded me of this. went to the All-Ireland Convention, and if you've never been to any convention in Ireland, you would really find it different. Because as you pull up to the hotel, there's a big banner outside the hotel that says, Welcome Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so I go to this convention in Ireland, and I hear this speaker say, You can do absolutely anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you're willing to do the work and pay the price. And I thought, Huh. Okay. So I went back to London. I quit my job. I went on the dole, and uh, I started applying to universities. I was going to go into a helping profession, going to help people. Two and a half years sober, I did not know myself well enough to know that I don't like people enough to want to help them. <laughs> Seemed like a really good idea, two and a half years sober. So I'm applying to universities, and I've got no money, and we have this 20-year-old uh, mini where you can see the road through the passenger footwell, and... Uh, you know, I'm being of service, giving newcomers a ride home if they push started for us. And uh, I was uh, about three and a half, four years sober when I got accepted to university. And uh, I got my first tattoo and my first motorcycle. <laughs> I was four and a half years sober. I had a motorcycle accident, so I got a bigger tattoo and a bigger bike. And... Uh, started my second year at university, and nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous seemed surprised. And I used to think it was because people in Alcoholics Anonymous believed in me. And I later heard a speaker with a similar experience say, it's people in Alcoholics Anonymous believing in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get that today. So I'm six and a half years sober. I am tootling along quite nicely in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sponsoring people. I'm sponsored. I'm uh, at university, and we were just about to leave the flat to go to a convention in the south of England, and the phone rang. And it was my mom. And uh, my mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And she asked me if I would go out to Southern California when she had her operation. Now, that may not seem like a huge deal to you, but it was massive to me because nobody in my family ever gave me bad news anymore because something bad would happen and I would go on a bender, so now I'm missing and they have the bad news. So they just stopped helping me. But here my mom was asking me to come back. And uh, I went on to the, I said I would, of course, and I went on to the convention that night, and I'm standing in line for registration. And this guy who had known me since I got sober pulled me aside, and he said, Hilda, would you share at the midnight meeting tonight? And I said, you know what, I'm really not up for it. And he said, actually, you look like you need to share and what I didn't realize was that the outsides were starting to match me insides, and he could see that. And he said, look, Helder, there'll be nobody there. The old-timers meeting is going on at the same time. It'll be good for you. I was like, fine, whatever, I'll show up. So I go to this midnight meeting. There's 250 people in the room. <laughs> and I cried for the very first time when I shared about my mom. Six and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had never cried. In fact, when you cried, I used to tap your knee. Sorry. You know, I had no frame of reference. <laughs> Sorry. But I cried when I shared about my mom. And something happened to me that night because a fella I barely knew stood up in the back of the room and offered me a flight to Los Angeles if I couldn't afford it. The fellowship 
of Alcoholics Anonymous touched me that night. It was the first time that I realized I was part of something bigger than a meeting, that I was part of that fellowship, and that I was in the middle of the bed. And of course, when the time came, I did go out to Southern California, and uh, I made sure I was there when she woke up, and I was there when she went to sleep, and the old 202 club in Pasadena was right across the street from the hospital, so when she was asleep, and I dashed across to meetings, and uh, so is it odd, or is it God, right? My old sponsor used to say that all the time. Because of what I had been doing at university, I got to take my mama home early and nurse her at home. So I'm nursing my mom at home and emptying her tubes for her, and she turned to me and said, you know, Hilda, I don't know how I'll ever pay you. I said, you don't get it. Six and a half years, I have waited for this moment when I get to be the daughter you deserved instead of the one you had. And my mom and I have a great relationship today. She's in remission, and uh, I love that thing. Life is not measured by the number of breaths you take, but by the moments that take your breath away. That's been my sobriety. It hasn't been about the years. It's been about those moments. You know, um, I was about, <clears throat> I guess, eight years sober. We moved out to Southern California. And we went out on a five-year plan. And uh, we stayed Southern. Um, <laughs> but I tell you, Southern California changed my entire sobriety. I was sitting in a meeting... Um, just this little tiny meet in the middle of nowhere, and um, they were having a group conference. And to this day, I can't tell you what it was about, but the whole room stopped and turned around and said, what do you think, Hilda? It was eight and a half years sober. I was the longest sober in the room. And I just looked at them and said, if I know all you've got, you're screwed. So a friend of mine who had time had kept inviting me to the Pacific Group, which is today my home group, and uh, she said, you know, you belong in the Pacific Group, you'll love it, whatever. So I went to the Pacific Group, and uh, I can tell you that uh, today I'm 22 and a bit years sober, and I'm still in the bottom third of sobriety, and, and I love that. But I met my sponsor there, and um, so it's a big meeting. If you ever get a chance to come to Los Angeles, I highly recommend you come visit us. It's probably the friendliest meeting you'll ever be, although I think Carl's probably going to say Covina is, but whatever. Um, <laughs> But every week I would go, and uh, something we do in our in our home group is we take you around and introduce you to people, and you get to shake hands and meet people. And um, every week the same woman said, "Hey, Hilda, it's good to see you again." And she remembered me every week. And uh, finally, I said to my um, friend, um, "Well, why don't you get her CD and see if you have anything in common? You know, because I wanted her to sponsor me." Now I had been to the World Convention in San Diego in 1995 when I was two years old. And um, I had heard this speaker talk about the price of her dignity was the glass getting pushed across the bar. And if the bartender had said, drink this and lose your dignity, she just said, make it a double and buy him one too. And I identified with that woman and quoted her for years. Never knew who she was. Driving home from the meeting that night, I pop in the CD and it's the dignity woman from San Diego. So I started stalking her, as you do. And um, she completely changed my sobriety when she started sponsoring me because she reminded me that page 77 says that our purpose is to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. It does not say in AA. 
it says to God my fellows. And uh, she completely changed everything for me. And um, in 2008, we had to go back to Ireland because my partner um, had some visa problems. So we went back to Ireland, and I was miserable in Ireland. I had a terrible time. But I'm well-trained in Alcoholics Anonymous. I phoned my sponsor every day, and I phoned her every day from Ireland. And finally, I gave in, and I said, look, Sand, uh, Sharon, I don't know what to do. I um, just can't get on here, and, you know, it was dreadful. And she said, you know, Hilda, it's probably time to get on an effing plane. So I hung up the phone, and my partner, who's three months longer sober, and will tell you so, said, uh, what did Sharon say? I said, she told me to get on an effing plane. And uh, my partner said, do you need a lift to the airport? Because we knew we'd work it out, right? It's not all it's known. So I go back to Southern California. I'm 15 and a half years sober. I am jobless, penniless, sleeping on my mom's floor. Not where I wanted to be at 15 and a half years sobriety. And I was having trouble getting, um, getting a job, and uh, I really didn't know what to do, so I threw myself into the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's what I did. And I got busy, and... Um, one day I called Sharon and I said, look, Sharon, I feel dreadful. I just, I'm not, just not getting it together here. And Sharon said, hang on a minute. Aren't you and your mother watching television shows together every week? And I said, well, yeah. And aren't you having dinner a couple of times a week together? I said, well, yeah. She said, huh. Don't you think this is another way to make amends to your mother by allowing her to be your mother? And I hadn't really thought of it that way, you know. <clears throat> but um, I finally got a job, and my partner got back in the country, and got nice cars and a nice flat, and life took off. And uh, in October of uh, 2011, the company I was working for was going under. So I called me mom. And I said, Mom, this company I'm working for is going under. I'm going to be out of work. And my mom went, you can come live with me. It took my mother 24 hours to realize I had given her bad news. She phoned me the next day and said, Oh, Hilda, I'm really sorry about your job. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> so in 2012, I was up for two jobs at the same time. One was with unmanned drones for the military, and the other was with the spirit of giving. Unmanned drones, spirit of giving. Now, if you've had more than a 10-minute conversation with me, you know I am an unmanned drones for the military kind of girl. My sponsor, who is an ex-bong wine-drinking hippie, said, I think the spirit of giving would be really good for you. So I was being a smartass, and I said, let's let God decide. She said, I think that's a great idea. So I had to take whoever offered me the job first. So, um... I got to work for the spirit of giving. With slides from the second floor to the first and barefoot prizes. It was an adjustment for me. I, uh, I thought I was dressed casual one day, right? I've got a button-down shirt, pair of jeans, and a blazer on. My boss walks past me, taps me on the shoulder, and goes, lose the blazer. So this is going to be a long gig. Uh, and they do this thing um, where they support one day without shoes to bring awareness to people who don't have shoes. So once a year, they, um, <clears throat> they go without shoes from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, right? 
Hi. So, I'm a little funny about my feet. When you grow up in England, you don't take your shoes off very often and wander around. It's not what we do. Uh, and I don't even own a pair of flip-flops. And the people I work with know this, so they said, you know, Hilda, you might feel a little more comfortable if you went and got a pedicure. Right? So I sneak out the day before at lunchtime. I go to the pedicure place, and I go in and I say, I wonder if I can get a pedicure. And the woman goes, pick a color! I'm like, picking a color, picking a color, I'm picking a color. I end up with bright red, right? So I sit down, and they put my feet in the water, and they start doing my feet, right? And then this woman comes over. She starts doing my hands. I'm like, no, no, just the feet, just the feet, just the feet. The hands are fine. The hands are fine. Yep, nope, they're doing my hands. And this other woman comes over and says, head massage. I'm like, no, no more hands on me. I'm having a full-on anxiety attack in a manicurist place, right? And uh, I get through it. And I'm talking to one of my sponsees that night. And she says, um, damn it, I wish you'd have told me you were gone. I'd have gone with you. I love pedicures. It would have been so good. I, th I thought, how nice is that, that she would want to go and support me like that. And she goes, oh, no, I just wanted to see the show. <laughs> the love of a sponsee. I'll tell you the other thing this company did was... Um, on your year anniversary and every two years after, you go to a third world country and you get to put shoes on kids' feet. And uh, we have a medic that goes with us. And this area of Honduras that I was in, um, the children were direct descendants of the Mayans, and the Honduran government did not acknowledge them at all. So their school had no running water or electricity, but these were the happiest kids I'd ever met. But um, if their feet were all tore up, the medic would take them and fix their feet before they got shoes. And uh, I had a little fella, and his feet were torn to the shreds. So the medic took him away, and he started to cry because he didn't think he was going to get his shoes. And my heart cracked open just a little bit. And as we were packing up to leave, I saw the little fella across the valley with his new shoes in his hands, giving us a wave. And my heart cracked open just a little bit more. Because I'm not that girl. I'm not the kind of girl that gets up and gets in the van to go do stuff like that. And of course, the point is, I almost missed it. I almost missed it. I am the product of strong sponsorship. You know, I, I take direction from a woman I don't always like to do things I rarely understand. <laughs> so in January of this year, um, I got this email out of the blue from this company that wanted me to go interview with them. Now, I never answer emails like that, but I did. And uh, in February, they wanted me to go interview in person. And I never do that when I'm working somewhere, but I did. And two weeks after that, I lost my job. I went through a reorganization. Not personal, purely business. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, we've been trying to buy a house for about three years and couldn't quite get the deposit together. When I lost my job, I got this big severance package, <laughs> which is more than enough for the deposit and enough to let me relax a little and find a job that I really want to do. Now, I don't know if that company I was interviewing for is the job or not, but I know they helped me get halfway out the door because if it had happened and I hadn't been talking to somebody else,
I probably would have been devastated because I loved working there. And uh, I actually have a big interview on Tuesday, so if you're thinking of me during the week. <laughs> you know, and the, of course, the thing is, I know today that God will put me exactly where he wants me because that's been my experience, you know. A few years ago, um, I, my, well, when I was drinking, my father passed away. And he was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And I was drunk when I buried him and uh, made a scene, and it just wasn't pretty, the whole thing. But I hadn't been back since. And I was going back to D.C. a, a few years ago to do this work conference, and my um, sponsor said, I think it's time. I think it's time to do some graveside amendments. And, uh, fine. So when he passed away, you get this pass, a family pass, that um, gets you into Arlington National Cemetery. I did not know it was a tourist attraction, and if you don't have this, you can't get in and drive around. So I've moved all over the world, drunk and sober. Uh, uh, but when we were going to D.C., I put my hand straight on this. I'm not sure how those things happen. But I took this pass, and we rented a car, and we drove over to Arlington, and we put it in the trash. And as we drove through the gates, <laughs> the, um, the guards at the gates came to attention and saluted. And I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> and I drove straight to my dad's grave. I'd only been there once and drunk. I drove straight there, and uh, you know, when I was at my dad's grave, I realized a couple of things. That my father would be proud of me today. Not because I've been of service to my mom, I've been of service at Alcoholics Anonymous. Not even because I've finished a bachelor's or my master's, or that I've been in a relationship for 20 odd years. My father would be proud of me today because I got just a little bit of the grace and dignity that I learned here. That's all he ever wanted from me. You know, my dad was never under any illusion to what I was or wasn't, right? I mean, when I was in Connecticut working for that company, my dad had come to visit me, and it was Christmas. And they had the Christmas party with an open bar, right? And I was drinking black Russians. <laughs> and uh, my dad came to pick me up, and I was legless. And my boss was mortified because she didn't see it happening, you know. My dad was a big guy, and he threw me over his shoulder. And as he was leaving, he said to my boss, don't worry about it. It's not the first time Hilda fought the Russians and lost. <laughs> That's what my family thought of me, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I have, I've had the opportunity um, to sponsor some amazing people. And... Uh, what I love about sponsorship is it never gets boring, you know. It is never boring. Just when I think I'm having a bad day, I just need a couple of them to call. Um, and I, I had one this morning. Um, now, I was up early because we're three hours ahead. And uh, I had this, <laughs> this gal I'm sponsoring call me and say, um, do I really have to go to the yard today? Now, we, we play volleyball on Saturdays. It's kind of a thing we do. It's a good thing. It's a bonding thing. It's a fun thing. But she didn't want to do it. And uh, I said, why, why wouldn't you want to go? And she said, well, you know, it's just, it's inconvenient. I said, it's inconvenient? I'm in Indiana. 
car. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is inconvenient. I love it when Larry Thomas said, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Prepare to be divinely inconvenienced. You know? <laughs> and I love what Sandy, my first sponsor, told me. Because um, I didn't like anybody, I told you. But the truth is, people didn't like me. Um, I was what the book calls an unlovable creature. Uh, the alcoholic in his cusp is an unlovable creature. I was unlovable. And uh, so Sandy told me, um, just remember, Hilda, Alcoholics Anonymous is not high school. It is not about being popular. It's not about looking good or sounding good or getting the job or losing the job or getting married or getting divorced or getting married or getting divorced. You know, it's not about getting the guy or getting the girl. It's Alcoholics Anonymous is about one alcoholic trying to help another alcoholic. It's that simple. And if you keep it that simple, you're in with a chance. And that is one of the best things that anybody had ever told me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, because, you know, I mean, if being life was a requirement, you'd have a way different person standing here today. And that's for sure. I later found out that Mike, the one who kept going with me to Dusseldorf, he actually was losing. They were picking straws on Thursday to see who got in the car with me. And poor Mike lost every week. He just wasn't good at it. <laughs> I tell you what I love. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to a lying, bedwetting whore. And somewhere along the way, you have turned me into a good friend, a loving and monogamous partner, and a true daughter to my mother. And for that, I thank you.